Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnicht, and I'm here with Ms. Catherine Gerth. She is Deputy Director in the Executive Management Division of ICTM, which stands for Information, Communication, and Technology Management. She is also Head Archivist here at NATO. Tell us about your role and your work. What does a typical day look like for the Head Archivist? Well, my role is head of both archives and information management, which here at NATO headquarters means that I control the information from the moment it leaves the staff officer's desk until we make it public 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now. My typical day involves taking requests in from people supporting the North Atlantic Council on a daily basis. Can we share this information? How do we share this information? How do we get this information from point A to point B? Very much at the forefront, or what did Council decide yesterday on this topic? Finding out the research on current items to support the daily business of the headquarters and to keep the Council itself running. At the same time, of course, there is the transparency initiative that the Secretary General has um, piloted. It began with the Wales Summit and at the Warsaw Summit had a big shout out, I guess you'd say, for the archives and our role in providing access to the public to both current and historical information about the Alliance, what it's done and its activities today. So. A typical day will blend all of that. And then, of course, there's my role as the deputy director of the computer side of the shop, which is simply because I'm the senior, the number two person in the service. Therefore, I'm in charge when my boss goes on leave. And so at the moment, it is anything going wrong with IT at the new headquarters. Do I have a minute to give a briefing on? And so it's it's a very diverse role and... Uh, brings a lot of different things into a day. Definitely exciting. Just to provide some background information, so mm -hmm. NATO is moving into new headquarters, is that correct? That's correct. Ha is that happening in the next It's year? currently planned for um, first quarter um, 2017. So we are, it's, it's a huge endeavor. There are 5,000 people on this campus and we have to move across the road while keeping operational. So it's not like we pack our boxes on a Friday and we move in on Monday. It's a lot more complicated than that, and we're starting to do that. Um, well, there are people already moving into it now. Um, people connected with running the building are already moving in. So it's a watch the space. We will get there. <laughs> <laughs> and when you mentioned that things go into the archive for 40, 50, 60 years before they're released to the public, can you give us some background on that? Is that because of the security clearance necessary? Um, it's partially. Um, we've recently revised all the council level policy to allow more flexibility in releasing current information. But at the 30, 40, and 50 year marks, we have rules about declassification. Um, we have to be compliant with the 28 nations. And they all have different rules. So we have to have a one-size-fits-all, and so there's classification, there is sensitivity issues. There are some topics that are as sensitive today as they were in the 50s, 
Um, I can't really give examples of that, obviously, but there are some things perhaps um, two allies had a dispute with each other. Um, they may not want that made, the discussions here at NATO about that made public even today. It can still be sensitive. Um, a few years ago, information concerning NATO's relations with Russia wasn't sensitive at all, and a lot of it became public, and now we're double-checking and making sure, oh boy, if we release that information now, is it inflammatory? And we, in terms of historical information, about 95% of it does get released. Um, example, last year we released nearly 100,000 unique items. Wow. Okay. So this is a huge catalog, a huge library yeah. to manage. Yeah. And uh, lots of sensitive relationships right. rely on it. That's right. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff. In some ways, it is the definitive record of the West view during the Cold War period. Um, we have things that have never been seen. Uh, there's stuff that the international staff has, and I, I use the term stuff because it is, there, there'll be photographs, there will be post-it notes and little scribbles and, and things where we provided, um, the staff provided guidance to the secretaries general over the years on what his different options on different topics were to approach the nations. So this is stuff that was not shared with allies. And we've made quite a lot of it public recently. Um, we do it in two ways, a systematic review. So if information is 30 years old, we automatically review it. So it gets circulated and it gets reviewed for um, ongoing national sensitivities or whether a weapon system we're talking about is actually still being used, um, in which case we might not release the information about, about it. But... That material, about 95% of it, is is released just after review. All NATO unclassified and NATO restricted information gets released at the 30-year mark, unless it's dealing with personnel matters and that sort of thing. And then what we have is what we call the ad hoc process, similar to a national access to information process, where um, members of the public can actually request information from NATO through a NATO member nation. So we don't take requests directly, but you can ask the United States, you can ask the United Kingdom, Canada, Netherlands, and they will review it nationally. And if they support the request, they will send it in to us for review by other allies. Um, we've recently released in the past year or so an a collection of information about Poland in the period of 1989 to 1994 at the request of the Polish government. Um, they want This is from the period before they were a member. We made that public uh, and they had an exhibition on that and showed it off. We've just done another exhibition on Hungary during the mid-50s and these are files that the Hungarian government of course had had no access to obviously and that many allies had never seen and um, there was an exhibition on that uh, just last week uh, and so it's um, and researchers who are doing work come and ask for information um, official government studies we have a request in from the Australian government about their role in ISAF so as they were members of ISAF, they're of course entitled to look at the information, but we, we actually have a bunch of government researchers coming in to write a classified um, report 
on their rule and they if they follow the pattern of allied governments what they will do is in a year or two come back and say oh we'd like to make this public and then we have right of review so we read the reports we then say aha you can't quite make that paragraph public please mm -hmm. um or if you want that to be public we're going to have to request all allies to agree to it and what is isaf is the international St stabilization in afghanistan force Security in Afghanistan Force, sorry. Mm. Um, it was NATO's mission in Afghanistan mm -hmm. up until 19... Sorry, 2014. Okay, great. 20, sorry, 1914. Wrong decade. Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about your personal path? How did you get into archivism? Actually, what, what's the right word? Um, it's records management. Okay. <laughs> it's a very boring term. But, <laughs> um... Honestly, it was completely by accident. Um, I began life with a degree in German language and literature. Uh, decided after completing that that I did not want to be a teacher, I did not want to be a translator, and I didn't want to go on and spend my life studying a poem. So I went back and I did another degree in history. And in Canada at the time, when you did your degree in history, at that point, you didn't do a separate degree in records or library. There was graduate programs in that, but you often spent a year doing um, archival type studies within the context of history, more from how to how to discover an archive as opposed to how to preserve it, which I found very interesting. And then immediately after university, I worked for the Canadian Department of Justice and what they called a historical data specialist, which was in the war crimes um, department, which at the time was looking into World War II war crimes, and therefore the combination of German and modern European history was very interesting to them, and the work I began to do there was much more about the archival and records keeping side of it, um, and very much engaged in what Canadian law is on the topic, and preparing stuff from archives in Europe to be used in Canadian courts. So, and from there I went to The Hague, where I was working for um, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, um, running what was called the Information Support Unit, um, which was all about making sure that both the investigators and the prosecutors had the information that they needed when they needed and in an evidentiary way that they could use in a courtroom. Um, when someone like, say, Milosevic gets arrested and we've charged him with three wars, well, and so what? I mean, which specific documents, which specific bits of information go into the courtroom to support this? And so I ran a team of about 200 people at the peak who were responsible for finding, maintaining, managing, and... Um, just making it all available, both electronically and physically. Um, so I did that for about 10 years and then I came here. So it was a backdoor kind of way, but I found I was much more interested in this aspect of it. Um, one of the things I like is that in my role, I get to see everything. So I'm not working on a topic for a year or two, like so many people find themselves doing. You know, this morning it's going to be about uh, an inquiry from, you know, shape about you know, an operation NATO is doing this afternoon. It could be something about the new NATO headquarters. Tomorrow it could be something about munitions safety. You know, you pick a topic 
and I get to be involved, which I like. Yeah. I I never would have thought that this about this this role. So I think it's really important that we're telling young women about it. Do you feel diversity is an important aspect in your work? Diversity is very important, um, particularly if I look at the work I do on um, supporting getting consensus, making sure that the rules we put around information exchange can be supported by 28 allies, being able to understand national sensitivities um, and concerns and issues and ways of approaching things. Um, is 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 essential. The way you you work with someone who is from the Netherlands is very different than how you would work with someone from Spain or from Turkey. And having members of the staff who are from those other cultures that you can interact with and maybe include in the meetings so that if I, as a Canadian with my particular viewpoint and background, say something, they can say, boss, you don't want to say that, or Catherine, you know, mm-hmm. actually, why don't we try this? Because if, if you don't, if you don't have diversity, both, um, you know, here at, here at NATO, it's not the way it was in the United Nations, where, you know, at the time there were 193 member nations. Um, here, you're talking about 28 allies. But it's still it's still very important to understand where they're coming from, because if you offend people or if you're not interacting correctly with them, then it becomes, well, I'm not going to do that. And so that's very important. I also find that um, we can be very white here, white male. Um, and even though our nations are not necessarily as white as we are here, um, it's, it's not changing fast enough. And so you're not getting the different viewpoints. You're not getting the different experiences that people can bring. And therefore you're missing things. And it's, I I found it very strange when I first came to work here, how homogenous we are. Um, we're still very, very male. Um, the majority of meetings I attend, I am the only woman, uh, still. Uh, so that's, uh, <laughs> and, and to me, I think you end up falling into the same trap over and over again, that if you don't have other viewpoints, you will do things the same way every time. How do you think we can combat this? And do you have any advice for women who in their careers may also be experiencing the same thing as the only female in the room? Um, combating it is challenging. It really has to begin with the HR process and how you do recruitment and where you look for people and where you advertise and reaching out um, to different different venues. I think this is great what you're doing here because it wouldn't occur to most young women with a non-military background that maybe NATO is a place to work. Um, But I work on the civilian staff. I am as far from a military person as you will find. Um, And so I think that's got to be a place to start to improve diversity, is not not advertising in the same channels for the same people. and of course, all the good HR best practice where you make sure your panels themselves are diverse. Um, so, uh, because otherwise you, you hire the people that look like you in the mirror. 
and therefore if the panel is 50 year old white men you're going to hire 50 year old white men unless you're making a conscious effort not to now that's not fair to all my colleagues who because of course if you if you're coming out of a system which has very much promoted diversity you're already in that mindset but um so that's that's one aspect for women who find themselves in that situation um I think it's just be yourself, that you're there for a reason and own it. You are who you are, you are a woman um, and dressing like a man is not, you know, like they did in the 80s in those nice man suits and ties, <laughs> um, isn't going to make anyone think you're a man. So be comfortable. Own, own, develop your own style both in behavior and appearance and be very comfortable with it so that you can if you're naturally an assertive person be assertive they will come up with all the usual words I mean just look what's happening to Hillary Clinton right um, they will come up with all the usual stuff but just just be confident because they will respect it and most of the men in the room are actually used to interacting with women a lot more than they display. They're married, they have sisters, they have daughters, you, they, they might be in clubs or other activities, or their previous workplace might have been more diverse. Oh. And when they tell the off-color jokes and then go, oh, sorry, Catherine, I found it helpful in my previous job, which was working with police, so also a very male environment, that I had my stack of inappropriate little jokes too. And the first time <laughs> that they apologized, you know, if you really meant it, you wouldn't have said it in front of me. However, I can, I am not shocked. It's not appropriate to the workplace. Oh, you don't like it when I say it, so let's move on. Um, word will get around that you're not shocked or offended by them and then they stop it's been my experience so valuable oh my god that's, that's hilarious and i commend you as a fellow woman <laughs> yeah i have also been in a room of 40 400 people where they've said lady and gentleman oh my goodness singling you out yes and I just spoke to the chairman after and said, I would prefer either just simply gentlemen or ladies and gentlemen, as though it were one word. Mm -hmm. um, bold. Bold. Uh, I think you have to be bold. You have to not be intimidated by it. And it can be intimidating. Mm -hmm. But just, like I said, own yourself. This is beautiful, Catherine. So for historically minded young professionals and students out there, is there an uh, <clears throat> is there a topic in international relations that you feel needs some extra help and attention right now? There's so many. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the the big topics that I see getting, we get the questions on that we struggle with are the, the non-standard actors. How do, how do you interact with, it's no longer nation state to nation state. It could be a trading block to another trading block. 
um, that the recent um, adventures we've had with the um, the trade deal between Canada and the European Union. Um, so that that's a non-standard relationship there. Or if you look at what is more NATO specific, if you look at some of the the counter piracy activity, how do you deal with 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 non-standard actors, whether for, for good or for bad, how do you deal with that? And I think that that is a recognized topic, but not as, as grabbed as it should be. And I see it being something that every day is more. Um, if you, if you look, you know, again, this trade agreement, it was a region within a country, within a trade block that was holding up 27, 28 other nations. And how do you deal with that? What are the mechanisms for dealing with that? Whether it's in defense, whether it's in trade, or any other domain, climate. You know, how do you deal with that? In, in Canada, we're just trying to work out our climate change rules. And of course, we've got this regional problem in Canada as well. We have the oil producing countries, um, regions which are of course not happy and then we've got the ones that depend more on tourism and natural resources or are on the coasts and sea level issue and they have very different viewpoints well when you cross national boundaries how do you deal with these internal regional interests who as we just saw with Wallonia actually have a bigger say than you might think on the outside and I think that one caught people a bit off guard and wait a minute how did that happen? And and people aren't dealing with that, I don't think, as much as they could. And I don't and I think that that is definitely a future topic. I don't see anything happening that says we're going less that direction. In closing, what is your advice to young women who are interested in a similar career to yours? Look in non-standard places for work. I think that um, if anyone had told me 30 years ago that this is where I'd be today, I, I, I would have just told them they were insane. It didn't even occur to me that an organization like NATO would have a role for people like me. Um, if you want to go out and look you know, look around, because your government, private sector has a lot of roles like this, um, and also all the international organizations do. Um, check out places like UNESCO and some of the listservs that are out there that that feed this community. And, and look around and don't be afraid to take a job that might seem to be not quite what you're looking for. Because in a lot of international organizations, you can define your job. Um, if you know what you're doing and you come in with conviction and you're willing to show initiative and work hard, you can take what looks on paper to be a very boring filing kind of job and turn it into something that is valuable to the organization and a great stepping stone in your career. Most of the jobs I have, I created the role. So that that would be my advice is, is to look around and also to reach out don't be afraid to send an anonymous email in i think you'll find that most women um, whether you're going through approaching them through linkedin or some other way do do like to receive emails from young women who are looking out for work and looking out for career potentials and look into the mentoring programs that go with that because i think Certainly my personal experience has been that if you reach out, people are normally willing to assist and help.
very exciting. But I would also um, maybe put the, sort of the woman in the workplace caveat is that we are still discriminated against. We are still asked questions about our families and how will our husbands move and, oh, what are your plans for children and all of that. Um, come up with your, your answers on that. And, I mean, for me, one of the answers is about names. I use the name I was born with. I will die with it, and in between I intend to use it. My husband's free to do what he likes. And when people do push, I say, I'll just point to the man in the room, because will be, and said, did you ask him that question? It's the same answer. And I think, you know, give a bit of pushback, very politely, give an example, but be prepared for those questions, because it's still there, and people do it unthinkingly.